Well, we are done the one-year Bible. And so congratulations. I know that everyone here who embarked on that quest finished it on December 31st. Probably a lot of you were finishing your last reading at 11.59 to welcome in the new year. So congratulations. Uh, If you didn't quite get all of it done, I would encourage you, just keep moving the pages, keep moving the bookmark. When you get through, you'll know you've read the entire Bible. And if you haven't done that before, it's something that is good to do. And we don't like to be legalistic, but it's something you ought to do. Uh, So finish up. Uh, But this morning, and for the next foreseeable number of weeks, we're going to be trying to work our way through the book of Isaiah. So to add to your reading... Uh, if you are not done the one-year Bible, also add Isaiah uh, to that, and over the next number of months, if you're reading Isaiah, you can read it this afternoon if you just take the time, uh, instead of watching football, uh, read the book of Isaiah, and uh, you'll get a bit of a range uh, of what we'll be dealing with. So this morning, we're going to look at chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1. Just a note, we are not going to be going verse by verse through the entire book. Uh, there will be sections where I group larger sections of chapters together. So Isaiah chapter 1 this morning. This is the word of God. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens! Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great. A brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. 
new moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. But now murderers, your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will, give vent, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. Before we uh, look at this passage together, uh, we'll pray and ask for the Lord's guidance and direction. Uh, just one slightly happier note uh, than how this text ends. Uh, we have... Uh, we're happy that everyone's here, of course, but we have a special little, wee little edition uh, who's here uh, this morning, and I will pronounce the name properly, even if I do it slowly. Rosaria. Yes! Nailed it. My daughter has her. Do you want her back? Okay, I wasn't, sure, I wasn't sure if this was a kidnapping sort of thing, but you offered. My daughter has Rosaria. Very good. Well, we're very pleased that she's here, very pleased that you're here uh, as well. So, uh, let's pray.
Lord, you are the Holy One and the Mighty One of Israel. You are a God who delights in faithfulness and righteousness. You are a God who is holy intrinsically and also a God who is holy because you work to make us holy. You set us apart and you sanctify us. You include us in your righteousness and then you, by your Holy Spirit, enable us to conform more and more uh, to your character and the character of your Son. Lord, we would ask that, that you, who are the God of this book, the God of this prophecy, that by your Spirit you will help us to understand it, and by your Spirit you will open up the riches of this book to us. Uh, this is your living word. It, is, it was given uh, through the prophets for the sake of those that he spoke to and wrote to, but is also given equally for us. And so we pray that this will be something that we benefit from, Lord. We pray that it is something that uh, you will use to, to speak to us and that we will hear your voice, that we will respond as we ought. Father, our thoughts uh, this morning are with Norm. We pray that you will give him a full measure of healing and recovery. Uh, be with Hadef and Kelly as well. Uh, strengthen their hearts. Give them the comfort and encouragement uh, that they need. For others who are also sick, uh, for those who are facing uh, health challenges, uh, Lord, we pray that you will, by your Spirit, be with them as well. Uh, Lord, help us, without being morbid, help us to, to realistically be prepared for the day that you call us into eternity. Help us to, to prioritize our lives on the basis of that inevitable reality. And help us to seek how to live and how to prepare through the truth of your word. We turn to it this morning, knowing that it is yours, and knowing that it is only by your grace that we can benefit from it. So we ask for grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the book of Isaiah, uh, 66 chapters, is not the longest prophet. Uh, Jeremiah, at 52 chapters, actually has more words. So we're not dealing with the longest prophet, but we are dealing with a significant uh, section of Scripture. It is reasonably lengthy to us. Uh, part of the part of the way you can you can sort of judge uh, culture and attention span is by what we perceive as being long. Uh, the Book of Isaiah, if you, if you were to clip it out of your Bible, it's just a wee thin little thing, really, uh, in terms of actually being a book. It, it's highly readable. Isaiah is also fundamental uh, for understanding the New Testament. Uh, Isaiah is quoted uh, by New Testament authors more than all of the other prophets combined. Uh, Jesus is often referring uh, to Isaiah to help people understand his own ministry. Uh, Isaiah sometimes has been called the, you know, the, the gospel of the Old Testament. Uh, there's just so much in terms of Messiah, fulfillment, redemption, salvation, deliverance. Uh, and if you like classical music at all, uh, Isaiah is also a significant text for a handle, in terms of Handel's Messiah. 
Now, in the first verse, you're told that Isaiah has a long ministry. He prophesies during the reign of a variety of kings. And you're supposed to be familiar, of course, with some of this history. So you're supposed to look at that list of kings, and from First and Second Kings, you're supposed to know some of the details of what's going on. Uh, there are sometimes uh, in Isaiah's reign, a lot of times there's a significant amount of danger. There are small periods of revival. Uh, there are periods of uh, national expansion and militarization, prosperity. And so Isaiah, over all these decades of ministry, is actually ministering in a wide variety of contexts. There's an awful lot that's going to be in this book. Now, the beginning of this proclamation, and Isaiah 1 really kind of gives you a summary of the issues that you're going to be dealing with uh, in the book. Verse 2, the beginning of this proclamation, sort of in, intentionally draws on imagery, covenantal imagery when God speaks to Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. And so you're locating, Isaiah's ministry is going to be based on the Torah. It's based on the law. In fact, this is vitally important if we're going to understand uh, what the prophets are doing. We often think of prophets as people who are just telling what's going to happen in the future. And there is some of that. Uh, well, there's a lot of that in Isaiah. But prophets are not, in the first instance, people who are simply saying, look, God's going to do this at some time in the future. What they're doing is they're saying, look, this is the covenant law that you're breaking. It is inevitable that if you persist in this rebellion, God is going to judge you. You need to repent. And so actually, what a lot of the prophets are doing is far from just predicting something that's going to happen in the future, they're looking back to the covenant, calling people back to the terms of the covenant. Uh, sometimes pro the prophets have been called God's covenant enforcement agents, and that's really what they are. Uh, they're telling the nation, they're telling the people, this will happen because God has already said it's going to happen if you continue to break His law. God can't bless you if you're living like if, if you're living this way. God won't honor you if you're not honoring Him. If you forsake the terms of the covenant and don't practice uh, issues of justice. In true worship, that of course God is going to bring the covenant curses upon you. So, a lot of what we'll see with Isaiah, particularly when it comes to his ministry to Israel, is this calling people back to the covenant. Come back and obey. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth. That echoes Deuteronomy, is a clear covenant reference. Why? Why do you want to listen? Why is creation called as a witness? For the Lord has spoken. This is one of those phrases you're going to get in Isaiah again and again and again. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The Lord has spoken. Whenever the Lord speaks, it's something which is to arrest attention. Uh, it's something which is to get, it almost, in some ways in this text, grabs you by the throat so that it's inescapable. God is speaking. Listen to God. Again and again and again, in, judge, in context of judgment, but also in context of redemption. All flesh will see the glory of the Lord, Isaiah 40. Why? All flesh together will see the revealed glory of God. How do we know? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You know, God speaks and it's a guarantee, either in judgment or in redemptive blessing. For the Lord has spoken. Listen to this. What has God spoken? The first legal indictment of his people is this. God has adopted Israel as his firstborn son. 
In fact, when he brings Israel out of Egypt, he's always referred to them as his firstborn. He takes them into the wilderness. He watches them grow. He nurtures them. He cares for them. God, God is their father. And what do his children do? I have adopted you. I have brought you up. I reared you. And you have rebelled against me. This is not a human father who has uh, frailties and makes mistakes. Uh, this is not a human father uh, who, is, who is a tremendous sinner who is abusing children. This is not even sort of the, the, the best human father imaginable who, who loves his kids and takes care of them but still makes mistakes. This is God. God Almighty, their creator, their redeemer, their father, and these children have rebelled against him. In other words, there can be no possible excuse. And this is, this is a shocking way of coupling thoughts. You don't expect God to say, I am your father, and then to hear, and you have rebelled. How is that possible for people who have been adopted by God to live in persistent rebellion against him? It's heinous. Not only is it wicked, but it's frankly stupid. The ox knows its master. The donkey, its owner's manger. But Israel doesn't understand. Now, believe it or not, oxen and donkeys are not reputed to be the smartest animals in the barnyard. Uh, in the ancient world, they're sort of proverbial for being strong, but not overly bright. And so when Isaiah uses this image, it's a cultural image to basically say, look, take the, most, take the stupidest animals that you know. They have more common sense than you do. They know their master. They don't bite the hand that feeds them. They know where the, the donkey knows who the manger is. The ox knows the master. They're not rebelling. They're not overly bright, but they understand sort of what, what, where they fit in. They do their work. They eat their hay. That's what they do. What don't you understand? I'm God. I give you everything. I give you life and breath and everything else. Everything you have comes from me. I am your father who has redeemed you, and you are rebelling against me. Even the donkeys don't do that. Even the oxen know better than that. You don't know. You don't understand. And it's not just a minor error. Woe to the sinful nation. A people whose guilt is great. A brood of evil doers, children given to corruption. What's, what's at the heart of all of this? They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned or possibly, it's difficult, but possibly better as mocked. They have mocked the Holy One of Israel. Not verbally, you understand. But in terms of how they're living. They're, they're mocking God. And who is God? He's Yahweh. They're forsaken Yahweh. That's a reminder of, of how God reveals himself where? At the burning bush with Moses. The beginning of the whole redemptive story in Exodus. 
This is God's covenant special name with Israel. You've rejected the one who, who liberated you from Egypt. You've spurned the Holy One of Israel. Again, that, that covenant linkage. Who is this God? He's the God. He is your God. Israel, this is your God. The Holy One of Israel. He is set apart in every way, transcended and categorically unique. And he has called you to be holy as well. He has set you apart. He has provided sacrifices uh, for you. He has provided priests for you. He has provided kings for you. He has given you a land. He, he has redeemed you and you belong to him. He is intrinsically holy and the one who makes you holy. But you're not holy. Your guilt is great. You're given to corruption. You've turned your back on the Lord. You've turned your back on the one who's given you life and breath and everything else. You've turned your back on the one who has made you a nation. You've turned your back uh, on the one who redeemed you and liberated you. You've turned your back not only on a king, but on a father. Your guilt is great. Your wickedness and corruption is immense. Even donkeys and oxen know better. And then God, having laid out this basic indictment, sort of giving us giving a sketch of where things are. He pleads with them very pragmatically in verses 5 and 6. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. God is saying, look, how about you just take stock of your situation? You're beaten to a pulp. And it's all unnecessary. Why persist in this? Is this working for you? How, how are you getting along living in rebellion against me? From, from top to bottom, inside and out, head and heart, that is, is, is the most important parts of you, who you really are in the inner place, your mind and, and heart, there's no health at all. You're just wounds and open sores. You've been beaten down. You're being ground down. And you won't stop. So it's like you're, you're, you're masochistic. You're a sucker for punishment. Just stop, God says. Enough! If you would stop, this wouldn't happen. Take stock of your life. Stop rebelling. What are you gaining? You're not healthy. You're not whole. You're not happy. You're, you're a gaping wound. No, no antiseptic. No band-aids. Why do you persist in rebellion? What are you gaining? What are you getting? Is this actually helping you? Not only is it personal, but it's also national. Verses 7 through 9 give you uh, a list of images of isolation and desolation. Basically, the whole country is destroyed. And Jerusalem is left like this little structure you know, in a field. But everything else around it is, is, is gone. You're like a city under siege. In fact, that's by itself more than you deserve. 
And this is shocking language. I mean, you get this at the end of Judges. You'll get this actually in Ezekiel in a particular place. But the analogy is drawn between Israel and Sodom and Gomorrah. And the idea is, look, you actually deserve the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. If the Lord hadn't left you survivors, you'd have been just like them. That's what you deserve. Now, why, why not, though? Just like at the end of Judges. Just like in Ezekiel. One of the incredible things is when, when the Sodom and Gomorrah analogy is raised, you're supposed to remember, of course, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Utter annihilation by fire. And you're supposed to know that in strict justice, that's established when Abraham's talking to, to, to the Lord you know, before the destruction of Sodom. In strict justice, it's exactly what they deserved. Now, what you're being alerted to here is that if God treats you, Israel, with strict justice, that is precisely what will happen to you. The question is, will God treat you with strict justice? If he does, there's no hope at all. None. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. So he, he's addressing them metaphorically as if they are Sodomites. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So, so you're, you're, you're the, sort of the rulers of, of Sodom and the citizens of Gomorrah. That's who you are. You are Sodom and Gomorrah right before me in the promised land in Jerusalem. And from verses 11 through 15, God lays out a blistering indictment of how much he hates all of their religious activity. He hates it. I hate your sacrifices. When you come before me, all you're doing is you're trampling my courts. You're, you're wearing out my facility. The only thing you do is, is cause wear and tear on the floor. I hate this. This trampling of my courts. All of your celebrations, they're not celebrations to me, God says. You know, your, your Christmas and your Canada Day, and you know, I guess Canada Day's not really devoted to the Lord, is it? It's a bad example. I don't, really, I don't really celebrate very much. Your Thanksgiving, you know, whatever it is that you're doing. You know, you, 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 and you come and you say, oh, we're so thankful to God, and we're so happy. I hate it. I hate your Sunday mornings. Of course, for them it was the Sabbath, we understand. But can you imagine hearing that? Now, there is a difference. There's a profound difference. I want to be very careful as we work through Isaiah. I don't have time to draw all of this out all the time. But there's a big difference between national Israel under the Old Covenant. Because not everyone in national Israel knew the Lord. That's why they're characterized by rebels who don't know God. In the New Covenant community... The new covenant is characterized by everyone knows the Lord from the least to the greatest. So to be awfully careful about just drawing complete equations between Old Covenant Israel and New Covenant Church, not the same thing. It's a totally different constituency. So I want to be very, very, very careful here. And yet also to take seriously the fact that God does not love Religious ceremonies, just because they're happening, there has to be hard engagement. You see this with the Pharisees. Jesus blisters the Pharisees. 
Why? Well, it's not because they're not praying. They're praying. Oh, they're praying lots. Or they're talking lots. But they're not really praying at all. Oh, they're singing songs. But they're not worshiping. Oh, they're, they're, they're sacrificing. But God doesn't need it. God doesn't want it. Your incense is detestable to me. So you want to pray? God says, fine, pray. But I'm not listening. I'm not going to answer. Why? Your hands are full of blood. For God, religion is a damnable thing. And religion is also one of the very, very last fortresses of rebellion. Because religion allows you to get this close to God but to never cross the line into actually knowing him. It can soothe your conscience. It, it, it can orient you with certain moral values and code. It can, it can put you in community of sorts. There can be lots of, lots of benefits to being religious. And so religion can be actually the most subtle of all of the ways of rebellion against God. Not, not open, sort of wild you know, debauchery and living, respectable, upstanding citizen, religious, and God hates it. I hate your religion. What you need to do is wash and make yourselves clean. As Lady Macbeth discovered, you can't wash yourself, really, when your hands are spotted with blood. But here God calls them, wash and make yourselves clean. The juxtaposition there of your hands are full of blood, wash and make yourself clean, is basically to show you even if you are a murderer, in other words, even if you are in the extreme of evil, you can be made clean. This is a, an accent of hope. It doesn't matter how, how filled with blood your hands are. There actually is a fount where you can be made clean. You can wash. No matter what. If that applies for the person whose hands are filled with blood, it applies for everyone. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. You'll notice the accent of these things falls into what we often refer to today as social justice issues. This is not just personal. 
It's societal. It's social. The two will obviously go together. If, if what God is saying is, look, you can't possibly come into my presence as if you honor me while you are trampling down the most vulnerable people in society. You can't say that you love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength if you have callous disregard for the needs of the marginalized in your community. You, you, you can't say that you love me if you don't love your neighbor. And, and love for your neighbor is a very practical thing. But where there's exploitation, where you're trampling them down, where you're gaining from them, where you're shedding their blood, don't, don't show up to church. Don't show up at the temple. Don't bring me the sacrifice that you were able to purchase because you weren't taking care of the widow and orphan. Don't think that, that religion covers over sins that way. In an easy kind of exchange. Well, it doesn't matter how I live Monday through Saturday as long as I bring a goat on Sunday. Don't, don't think that it's mechanistic. Rather, take up the cause of the followers. Plead the case of the widow. Be engaged. Do something in society. Help people. But again, don't do it to earn favor and merit. Good works is another one of the last vestiges of rebellion. Where we do good things for other people out of the wrong reasons. Out of the wrong motives. Come now. You, this is one of those famous verses. If you actually read Isaiah, there will be lots of verses you recognize. Come now, let us settle the matter. Come now, let us reason together. You're probably more familiar with says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. God here is actually, the language is, is somewhat legal. He, he's calling the people, look, let's settle the case. Let, let's figure this out right now. No matter what. Think it out. Reason it out. You're guilty. There's, there's, if you are going to plead not guilty, there will be no case. You are guilty. That's the starting point. When you come to God, you have to understand you are not in a position to bargain. You are not in a position of strength. You are not in a position uh, of appealing to anything except mercy and grace and leniency. That's it. Because you are guilty. God has already established that. But what he's saying, he's not saying, come, let's reason it out. Maybe it's not as bad as I think it is. God is not asking for your perspective. God is not asking for your advice. God is not asking for your evaluation. What he's doing is he's saying, look, you're guilty. Let's settle this right now. But if you will simply acknowledge that and start following me, no matter how bad your sins are, you will be completely pure and innocent in my sight. As red as scarlet, as white as snow or wool. Now for us, with this side of technology, we can make white really, really white. Blindingly white. But in the ancient world, there was nothing of darker hue than crimson. 
in terms of stain. And there was nothing whiter than you. If you ever went out and you saw freshly fallen snow, there'd be nothing whiter you'd ever seen in your life than that. And so the contrast here is enormous. What God is saying is, saying, come, reason it out with me. You are guilty. In fact, you may be as you may be guilty of the worst things imaginable. Nothing worse. Nothing of deeper dye. But you can be purer than anything in the world. From here to here. Reason it out. You're, you're, verses 5 and 6. There's no soundness in you from the top of your head to the bottom of your foot, inside or out. So let's reason it out. You're beaten to a pulp. Reason it out. You're, you're rebelling against your father who's your redeemer king. Reason it out. Yes, you're guilty. You're, you're incredibly guilty. You're eternally guilty. You're infinitely guilty. But I'll make you pure. I'll make you innocent. I'll wash you. And you'll be white. And then you'll flourish. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. I'll bless you. Not, not only will I legally make you pure and innocent, I'll bless you. You'll enjoy the best. It's life and flourishing or rebellion and death. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Why? For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. This is what God says. God says to everyone in Israel at this time, he says to every one of us here this morning, here are your two options. You are guilty. I can make you clean. No matter what. If you choose life, I will bless you. If you reject me, you will die. Those are the options. There's no third option. And this will happen for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God has declared it. This is the way that it is. And then, God is going to transform the city. Verses 21 through 31. The city was, is now filled with immorality, injustice, corruption. We'll see these themes again later on. So I'm going to work through this. I'm just going to stay and move on. Uh, the city is filled with immorality. Injustice, corruption, but, verses 24 through 26, God is going to restore them. Afterward, the end of verse 26, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. God is taking those who are unrighteous and unfaithful and making them faithful and righteous. God is taking those who are rebelling and making them obedient. God is taking those whose sins are like scarlet and making them pure and as white wool or snow. So, verses 27 through 31, Zion will be delivered with justice. Her penitent ones with righteousness. Again, it's another, they use the contrast again. If you repent, you will be delivered in righteousness. If you forsake the Lord, you will perish. And if you forsake the Lord, verses 29 through 31, God will make you ashamed. You'll be ashamed of, of these syncretistic pagan religious practices. The, the reference here to the sacred oaks and the gardens uh, are, are, are sort of pagan, uh, pagan groves, pagan places. But verse 30 says it's like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. A garden without water is useless and a waste, but it's also dry. It's also vulnerable to fire. 
And that's what God says in verse 31 is what he will do. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. God says, come to me and live. If you sit in rebellion and religion, I will burn up both the man and his work. Both who you are and what you've done will face total destruction and no one will quench it. Verses 16 through 18 the call to wash and be cleansed, and God saying, your sins are, are scarlet, they can be white as snow. That falls in the middle of this section. It's the pivot. You, you get there, then you move out of it, but you're not supposed to forget it. Uh, it it's sort of like, um, you know, could almost call this like the, a sandwich technique. You know, you, you, you've got your two pieces of bread, but, but the good stuff's in the middle, right? And so this is how this text functions. The hinge or the pivot is verses 16 through 18. Oh my goodness, before you get there, there's a lot of bad stuff, right? You don't want to think about this. And the picture is appalling. There's no hope. You're like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's all death and destruction. Except, God says, look, look, listen, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. I'll forgive you. He didn't say that to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They experienced fire that no one quenched. Chapter 1 ends with that warning. You people of Sodom and Gomorrah, remember that fire that, that annihilated them? There's a fire coming for you too. Except that it is 100% unnecessary. It never needs to spark. It never needs to burn. It's completely avoidable in every way. All you need to do is come back to your father. All you need to do is come back to the Holy One of Israel. The one who blesses you and redeems you. The one who loves you infinitely. All you need to do is come back to me. And you'll be forgiven. Such rich grace. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. Oh, your performance is not only not good enough, your performance is awful. It's wicked. But in grace there's forgiveness. Freely offered. Just reason it out. Come and talk to God. Come to Jesus. Isaiah's audience could never have known what we know. And that is the reason God can forgive us and reason it out. The reason God can take care of our sin is because his own son was going to come and, and die and provide an atoning sacrifice that was pleasing to God for the sins of his people. That Jesus would, in some ways, accept the curse that the people were owed. That Jesus would be burned by the divine fire on the cross, metaphorically. That Jesus himself, on the cross, chose to be treated like a ruler of Sodom. That Jesus on the cross chose to, 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 to identify as the representative of Gomorrah. 
so that God's wrath would fall upon him and spare the penitent, spare his people. So if Isaiah's group, if Isaiah's audience was responsible to come now and reason together, we have even less excuse if we don't. Come and reason with God. Look what he has done for you. No matter how evil your sin is. No matter what you've done. Up until this exact moment in time, no matter what you have done in your past, no matter how, how, how dark or how red, how stained, how evil, how, how unconscionable, how unspeakable, whatever it is, God says, there is free and full forgiveness in my grace, in my Son, if you will come to me and trust in him. That's it. The free offer of God's grace. So come and live. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. That's Isaiah 1. Weak and weary, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you full of pity, love, and power. He is able. He is able. We know that. But that's not the, that's not the beauty of the verse. Yes, he's able. He knew what he wants. He is able. He is able. But what we need is a God who wants to. The hymn writer understands that. He is able. He is able. He is willing. That's the key. He provides this willingly. He does it. Of course he can do it. He can do anything. He's God. But he wants to. He is willing. Doubt no more. Come to God. Repent of your sin. Be washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Just take a moment before God. As individuals, I'm going to ask uh, those who are going to help distribute these elements to come forward. In a moment, we'll pray. We'll celebrate communion together.